0: We are in part 12 of our Revelation series, and I entitled today's message, It's Wrath Time. Now, you would kind of say, well, that's a little bit of a jarring transition that all of a sudden you got the soft little babies. Now you're talking about the end of the world. Well, you are now going to see demonstrated in front of you the two sides of Jesus. There was Jesus soft with the little babies, and this is Jesus also writing in and setting everything Right. And closing up this world so if you would turn with me to Revelation chapter 6 we can kind of get started together Revelation chapter 6 verse 9 it's page 870 now for those of you that are visiting us or those that haven't been a part of this series you're gonna immediately say wow I feel lost I just need you to know we all feel that way okay you didn't miss anything You can go back and listen to it and you're still going to be a little bit confused, but there's a few things that we're going to try to tackle today and sort out. Where we are at is basically a man that was closest to Jesus, some would say his best friend, a man named John, about 2,000 years ago was exiled for believing in Jesus Christ, for being a Christian, was cast out and exiled by a Roman emperor onto a Roman penal colony on an island called Patmos. While he's out on this island, God gives him these dramatic, amazing visions. He begins to see stuff that he doesn't understand. He's freaked out by. He's constantly wondering, what in the world does all this mean? So as confused as we may be, so was he. But as he began to see these visions, little vignettes of how the world would end, he began to write them down and chronicle them out. And that was collected into a book that we now study as the book of Revelation. Now, we don't pretend to understand it all. I certainly don't pretend to have the corner market on truth. I'm not a brilliant genius that has everything figured out. I'm sorting it out along with you. However, there are certain things that when we go back and research, they can become a little bit clearer. So here's where we are in the story. He saw at the beginning that Jesus Christ was represented as a lamb, a lamb that had been slain as Jesus died on the cross and was killed for our sins, took all the power and wrath of God upon Himself so that we would not have to suffer that as His children. This Lamb sat upon the throne and He took from the hand of God a scroll. This scroll, for whatever reason, had something in it containing about how the world would end. He was the only one worthy. To open it and look inside. The scroll was sealed with seven seals. Every time he broke one of them, something significant would happen. We have already watched the first four be opened. And that is where, maybe you're familiar with the fact of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. They were the first four to ride out. As he broke the first seal, a white horse rode out with a man seeking to conquer. As the second horse rode out with the second seal, it was a fiery red horse about war and bloodshed the third horse rode out a black horse and that was famine the fourth horse came out a pale horse a greenish yellow greenish white sickly looking horse rode out with death on its back and Hades following behind it as we study those last week we have now come to the fifth and the sixth seals as a matter of fact the 5th we'll talk about people who have died for Jesus The sixth seal will bring about all types of signs and wonders in the sky, things that will make people's heart melt with fear, where the whole earth, the whole sky is shaken. As a matter of fact, it will last, that sixth seal will be discussed, not only the rest of this chapter, but the whole of the next chapter, which we will study next week. Then the seventh seal is broken, and that announces where seven angels march out and talk about the judgments of god now where do these fit in a time frame every time we're looking at this book we keep going so when's that going to happen when's that going to happen i'm become more and more convinced every week that the vignettes that john sees the little short visions themselves in one big collection are not in chronological order always within each vision there is a chronology but he, what it basically looks like is almost as if you saw it portrayed across saying, this is how it's going to go. And the typewriter goes all the way to the end and goes, cha-ching, and it slides back. And it begins to tell you a little bit more in detail. And then it slides back a little bit and shows you even more in detail. It explains characters. It explains issues. It answers questions like, why? With each vignette that he sees, with each vision, with each dream... He learns something new about the end, and so do we. So, these seals, the first four, we seem to indicate either they happen before this end of the world period of difficulty, which we guess to be a seven-year period called the tribulation. That is a time when a mighty leader will rise up. We know him to be the Antichrist. He will be a wonderful savior to the world. Then his true colors will show that he's a bad guy. And there will be a lot of bloodshed and persecution of Jews and Christians alike. Now, we'll learn more about that guy a little bit later on. But what we need to know is that throughout all these signs and wonders, God is trying to get across certain points about who he is. We're not here just to know the details of how everything is going to happen. We are not here to become brilliant. We are here to understand our God and understand where we're going. These things should become abundantly clear. One of the things that you wrestle with right off the bat is, what about all the wrath? God seems to be pretty angry about certain things. Today, you get to hear why. But as he's executing out judgment on the world, you begin to hear him do things that we're not allowed to do. You go, well, how's that fair? God, you tell us not to be jealous, yet you say that you're a jealous God. You tell us not to judge other people, yet you are the great judge. You tell us that vengeance is mine, that we are not supposed to avenge ourselves, but you are bringing about vengeance. So why do you get to do all the stuff we don't get to do? The answer is the fill in the blank in front of you. At least it gives us an insight on the handout sheet that was given you at the front door. There's a fill in the blank. That fill in the blank is this. Whether it be jealousy, whether it be vengeance, whether it be judgment The answer would be the same today. This is the fill in the blank. Vengeance is only proper for the pure of heart. Vengeance is only proper for the pure of heart. Why can God do what we cannot? Because his motives are different because he's not caught up in the petty. I got to get somebody back for what they did to me. He is not caught up. In the mixed motives of the selfishness. He is pure. He is clear. He is just. He is right. When he executes judgment, it's accurate. When we execute it, it's bent. When he executes wrath, it is for the right reasons, on the right things, to the right people. It is not like us that paint with a broad stroke. When we judge, we don't even know what we're talking about. We can't see clearly. We don't have all the pieces. And so we judge improperly and unfairly god however is completely purified of all of that he's very specific and very perfect when you see him take out the vengeance that's the whole reason why you're not supposed to do your own vengeance when god says vengeance is mine somehow that doesn't seem to bring us peace and i don't know why Isn't the main reason why we have a hard time forgiving is because we believe that everyone's going to get away with it? Isn't that the real reason why you don't want to forgive? If you forgive it, then they're just going to get away with it, then they'll do it again. Or they'll never pay for that. So you hang on to it. That somehow by hanging on to your unforgiveness, you're punishing them. That actually is not true. The reason why God is telling you to let it go is because someone is going to take care of it. He said... Step out of the way, please. I'm coming in. Is God better at vengeance than you are? Yes, he is. Do bad guys ever get away with anything? No, they do not. When sin happens, someone dies. It's either going to be them or it's going to be Jesus. Same thing happens with us, yes? Either you will die for your sins or Jesus will. Somebody's got to die. When you see the wrath of God come upon the world, I want you to see what one of the major triggers is. It happens at the beginning of our story together. If you haven't already, turn with me to Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, and I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. You can read along with me in your Bible. We pick it up in verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the soul's. Of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake and the sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as late figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they call to the mountains and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? Would you pray with me? Lord, we don't understand it Clearly. Yet what we must know, you have to reveal to us. You have to share with us what it is that we have to see. Lord, is it that you're sharing us with us the idea that we need to be on the right side? On your side? Is it about being humble and not being arrogant? Lord, is it about... You being a protective father, is it about knowing that some of us may die? Whatever it is, Lord, you need to reveal it to us because we're not going to understand it. So Holy Spirit, have your way with us today. Share with us what you want, that we may be different people. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go back and tear this apart. Verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, that is the Lamb, Jesus Christ. As he broke open the fifth seal on the scroll, John said, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. Immediately, a picture needs to come to mind. These are visuals. These are images. These are illustrations. What did he see? He saw two very significant things, an altar and he saw souls underneath it. What does that mean? That's very significant to a Jew. It's very significant to a Bible student who knows the Old Testament. Why? Because there were altars in the Old Testament. There's altars talked about in the New Testament. But what does it mean? Well, the way that it would work is that God, as He designed through the Jewish people, He was going to be amongst them. He had a place where he was going to localize his presence and travel with them. He did so initially in a movable tent. What was that called? The tabernacle. A tabernacle is merely a movable temple. Now, once they got secured into their land and they were able to build a building, that then became known as the temple. And it followed a very same pattern. But when it was a tent thing, or whether it was a temple, it had three areas to it. The outside was the main court where people could go into. Then there was an inner court called the holy place, and only priests could go in there. Then there was a very small room inside that, curtained off, called the what? The holy of holies. Only one time a year could the high priest go into there on the day of atonement. Inside that curtained off area was the famous gold box known as the Ark of the Covenant. On the top of that golden lid were two giant cherubim winged angels that extended their wings out. And between there was known as the mercy seat where the very presence of God would be intensified. Now there was a bunch of different articles that they would make that they put into the tabernacle in the temple. Some of those things were things like a wash basin. There was a large wash basin where you would symbolically wash your hands as a cleansing. These are all word pictures to teach them something. There was also on the outside in the outer court, not just the wash basin, but what was called the bronze altar or the burnt offering altar. And what they would do is they'd bring up their sacrifices and kill them and then put things on a burning barbecue. That's all it really was. Then once you got inside the curtained area, you began to see other things. There was a beautiful golden lampstand. There was a table with unleavened bread on it. There was another altar with four points coming out of the corners known as the altar of incense. Anybody know what incense is? Yeah, okay, got a little bit of a revival in the last coming years, Yeah. It's the good smelly stuff. Or not so, depending on which store you walk into, all right? Now, what they would do is they would burn this consistently before the Lord. Remember, all these are merely pictures to describe a spiritual truth. So, they would have them burn continually, why? Because the aroma that would rise up from the incense was supposed to resemble what? The saints' prayers going up before God. There was always prayers being lifted up. They could even see the smoke rise. Now, when the priest would go up and he would say, as anybody sinned, they must bring an offering or a sacrifice. And there was an animal sacrificial system that was instituted in the Old Testament. Weird, creepy. I'm an animal lover. Totally bugs me. All right. Whatever, God decided to work it that way. Mostly to demonstrate the idea that when someone sins, someone dies. That was the kind of one to one ratio. You had to understand that. Well they would bring up a bull, okay? Big old huge cow. The person would walk it up, they had to own it personally, then they would the priest would have them lay their hands on the head and symbolically say, I'm guilty, so he must die. They then cut the throat of the bull, and blood begins to drain out. They then did three special things with the blood. They would take a little bit of it and go in and mark the four corners of the altar of incense. That was one thing. The second thing is they would sprinkle it seven times before the curtain in a symbolic way of taking away their sin. Now there's a bunch of blood left because you didn't use very much. They then pour all the remaining blood under the altar. Now, they would take some of the fat portions, burn it on top, then they would take the body and take it outside the camp and get rid of it. What did we just see that John saw? He said, I looked out and there was an altar. Is it the incense altar? Is it the burnt offering altar? Well, it's kind of both. Here's why. He said, and I saw underneath the altar. The minute you say underneath the altar, we immediately go, oh, it's the burnt offering altar. Because that's the only place they would pour the blood. The souls of those who had been killed. What does that mean? Put it all together. When Christians die, it is a sacrifice to God. He does not ignore it. It is precious to him. It is something that's a big deal to him. And he will make sure there is justice as the blood is poured out. So have all these lives throughout history been poured out for the sake of God. And there they are symbolically poured out under the altar. Now, we learn in the next chapter. That on this same altar, the prayers are rising of the saints. So it's part burnt offering altar. Part incense altar. Now, what do we learn from this? We now have all these souls underneath this altar and they say something. It says they called out in a loud voice, maybe like a cry, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? This answers the age-old question of why are we waiting, right? God, we're dying for you down here. We're being tormented for, for you. I mean, we're down here. People are making fun of us. We're being persecuted. There were times when the Christians were thrown to the lions and ripped apart and sawn in two and drawn and quartered. There are horrific things that have happened all through the centuries, all through the millennia, to the Jews, to the Christians. And while they all seem to die, the question is, when does it end? When is enough enough? When are enough people dead? God, well, don't you care? And they never ask the question, don't you care? They know he cares. But they still have a question. God, as much as you are the sovereign Lord, as much as you're the boss, as much as you are holy, perfect, as much as you are true, I still want to know how long, how long must we wait for justice? You would assume he would go, okay, I'm on it. Right? Or he'd make up some excuse. What does he say? Then each of them was given what? A white robe. What does white mean? Righteousness. They were all given a white robe, right? As he hands them out the robes, they're souls now. So souls don't wear clothes. So what is this? Obviously, this is all a symbolic picture, right? Right, so he starts handing them out. They're like, gosh, now that I'm a soul, I've lost a little bit of weight. I, I can I can use a medium. You know, I know. Well, we're all out of larges, right? So he hands out the robes to all these souls under the altar, right? And they were told to wait a little longer. Boy, how irritating is that? God, we're dying here, literally. How long? Longer. Hands it to him. Longer. Why? What does he say next? Until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. There's more dying to do. What I do not see in here is any discussion of, oh, it's God's kids are going to escape from everything. They're not going to have any problems. Everything's going to go super great for them. I see none of that. What I see is, hey, kids, I know you died for me. Hang on. I got more people that need to die. That's what I see. Wait, because in this tribulation period, in this difficult time at the end of the world, there will be many that will be slain for the cause of Christ. As a matter of fact, when we get a little later, further on in the book, it defines how they're going to die. There were many that were what? Beheaded. We learn later on why they were being beheaded. There was an argument there with the Antichrist. The man who would set up the 666 mark and no one could buy or sell without the mark. And if he didn't do that, that was a rebellion and those people were beheaded. We begin to learn all that story later. But for now, we just know people die. Then what? I watched as he opened the sixth seal. What's significant is the sixth seal comes right after the fifth seal. Fifth seal was how long, Lord? The sixth seal is... I'm on it. And there we see the day of the Lord signs hit. What are the day of the Lord signs? Well, let's read it. I watched as he opened the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake. As a matter of fact, the first of three massive earthquakes in the book of Revelation. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. What in the world is a sackcloth made of goat hair? Any of you guys got those in your closet? That's weird. A sackcloth is a garment that was made literally out of a black goat's hair. It's an itchy, nasty garment. Why would anyone want one? Because the Middle East people groups are awesome at mourning. They're really good at being sad, and they're very professional at it. They have professional mourners and criers and wailers and weepers, and they even have clothes that say, I'm totally miserable. So what you would do is you would say, I'm in torment on the inside. You don't seem to get it. So I'm going to wear something on the outside so you know how much I hurt. They would wear these black garments that were so itchy, they would irritate the skin on the outside. And they would say, I'm hurting so bad. I don't care what torment is on the outside. I want to hurt on the outside as much as I hurt on the inside. That's sackcloth. Well, all of a sudden the sun gets blacked out. What else? The whole moon turned blood red. The stars fell to the earth like the late figs drop. The winter figs didn't have any leaves to protect them from the wind. So when the wind would sweep in, it would just knock the figs right off the tree as they just dropped. So John saw stars fall from the sky. These are the signs of the day of the Lord. Day of the Lord is a big deal to a Jew. In the Old Testament, all the prophets talked about this. They'd always talk about the sun being blacked out, the moon turning red, the stars falling from the sky. They would mention those signs over and over and over, whether it was Ezekiel or Isaiah or Hosea or Zechariah or Haggai. All these ancient prophets, they kept mentioning the same signs. And the Jews would get so excited because that was the day of God's wrath. They knew His wrath was not coming for them. And they knew that the day after the day of the Lord was the day of their redemption. The day when all the promises come true. So nothing could get better until they saw the signs of the day of the Lord. Here we have those signs. That's why I feel that these seals are one vignette of how the whole thing, most of the whole thing is going to go. We have the day of the Lord, which is the end of it being demonstrated here. And the next seal that we see, we see a bunch of people being raised back to life and moving on into the millennium. Now, what do we do with that? What's it really going to be like? Are these literal? Because sometimes you can go back in the Old Testament and they'll say, and the star fell from the sky. But they don't mean a real star. They mean a ruler. Some king or some amazing ruler gets dethroned so they say symbolically a star fell from the sky so are these just symbolic very possible is that where things are falling down and the antichrist is overturned and the false prophet is put away is that what it means or is it literal the description we see after this is people are freaked out and they're running for cover so i would venture to say even though they ran for cover when there was a siege on jerusalem which was very political there seems to be something happening in the sky. I think it may well be literal. If it's literal, what would it look like? First, we begin with a massive earthquake. Have there ever been earthquakes before? Well, yeah, there's a whole history of earthquakes, right? Are there been big ones? Yes, there have. As a matter of fact, have there ever been earthquakes associated with God's presence? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Do you remember what happened when Jesus died? What happened? There was a massive Earthquake. It split the temple in two. Do you remember that? And darkness descended over the land. Oh, what's happening here? Same thing. When Moses went head to head with Pharaoh and the twelve, and the ten plagues rained down on Egypt to break the neck of the Egyptian empire, what hit? Darkness covered the land. These are not new signs. These were physical manifestations of stuff that happened. Now, how's it going to happen? We got some guesses. Is it an eclipse? Where the sun is blacked out and the moon turns red? Is it merely a visual sign in the sky? If that's the case, it's only going to show an eclipse maybe to one area. Or maybe it's this whole thing where everybody sees the same thing. Maybe it's an eclipse. Maybe... When the earth starts splitting, it says every island is removed and every mountain is moved. We have massive seismic movement, tectonic plates shifting all over the place. We have the ground ripping open, things moving, volcanic eruptions. And when they blast out into the sky, what happens? You got ash, soot, everything up in the sky. What's going to happen to the sun? Blacks out. What's the sun, the moon going to look like as it shines through black? It's going to look red. Red. But when it starts talking about stars falling, we've got to redefine something. Do you all understand that stars are bigger than we are? And they're really far away. Our closest star is what? The sun, and it's 83 million miles away. Now, if the sun fell, we'd be burned up. If the sun moves any closer, we get all burned up. So no, the stars are not going to fall on earth when they're much bigger than we are. However, the word used for star in the ancient literature can mean anything but the sun and moon, anything that shines in the night sky. When we see a falling star, are we looking at a star? No, we're not. When stars fall, that's called a supernova and they cave in and that's a whole different ballgame. When we see a falling star, we think of things like meteorites, asteroids, anything that's shiny and makes a neat little trail. That's what we call a star. Is asteroids going to be plummeting and, hit and hitting and pummeling the earth? Is it going to be um, some type of meteorite shower? Is, what's going to occur, we don't know. But everyone's going to begin to see this. And it's going to strike fear into the hearts of all the inhabitants of the earth. Who are the inhabitants of the earth? Every time that phrase is used in Revelation, it means the enemies of God. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man. Stop. How many classifications of people were just mentioned? Seven. What's the number of perfection? Seven. What's the biggest number in Revelation? Seven. It's symbolic of all the people that thought they were secure. Everyone that was big, bad, cocky, and arrogant and thought God could never reach them are scared to death for their lives. They ran and hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains and they called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Two things become very obvious. Number one, they're scared. Number two, they know who's doing it. Ah, they know it's God. God. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? But there's one thing absent in their fear. Repentance. There's none of it. You could be scared to death and still not change your heart. Never underestimate the stubbornness of a human being. How about you? Not everyone here serves the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Well, because you got it it better? You got a different way? Someone's dying for your sin, and that's either going to be you or it's going to be Jesus. What are we going to do with that? Jesus offers out and says, I'd like to take care of that. Will you surrender? No matter what pressures hit some of us, we just won't cave. We just won't give in. It's still all about me, my way. I'm going to make my own thing. I'm my own man. I'm not going to fall for any of this stupid Christian stuff. And everybody's, they're just following in this phase. And there's no respect whatsoever for Christianity. I get that. Looking from the outside in, it does look stupid. I get it. But there's no other way to be saved. I'm betting my eternity on it. So what we must recognize is that this is true. We must recognize that it may well come in our lifetime. It may not, but it doesn't matter. We know that it will end. We do know what side we want to be on. We do know that the Bible says someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I'd rather do that on my own now than when I'm forced to later. The Bible says you can either fall on the rock, meaning Jesus, and be broken. No question it's going to hurt because you've got to surrender. You've got to throw your guns down and lift up your hands, and nobody wants to do that. You can either fall on the rock and be broken, or you can wait until the rock falls on you. You'll be ground into dust and blown away. You go, oh, you're just trying to scare me. No, I'm really not. That's not my MO. I'm just trying to tell you the facts. What do we do with Jesus today? Because I know what he's going to do in the future. He cries out. He cries out to us in our hearts and says, do you love me? God, I don't even know who you are. I know. And that's what I want to fix. Do you love me? And that's the question for us, for you, for me. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, so much to think about, so much to wrestle with. Lord, these same babies that we saw in front of us, we all once were like that. And yet many of us still remain hard-hearted. Where Lord, we don't want your salvation because we don't believe it to be true. Yet, You have proven Yourself trustworthy. You have shown Your Word to be extraordinary. You have done all that is possible to be done. You have done the extravagant act of love by sacrificing Your own Son that we might live. Lord, may none of us leave this place here today without a fresh start with our Lord. God, save us. Change us. You are such a protective Father that, Lord... Our hurts, our pains will be taken care of. We lift them up to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.